Welcome to the 343rd of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we're starting with the 14th part of Wilmot's History of the Zulu War, and then I'll run part 8 of Three John Silence Stories. Let's head off to that dark continent. In the beginning of July, Lord Chelmsford's column was within 10 miles of the King's Kraal at Alundi. Messengers again arrived from Quechua, and on this occasion they brought the sword of the Prince Imperial as a peace offering. The Amanesis of Quechua was a Dutchman named Vogel, who took the opportunity of marking in pencil on the envelope of the letter that the King had 20,000 men with him. The reply of Lord Chelmsford was as follows. If the Indana Mandala brings with him the 1,000 rifles taken at Isaloanda, I will not insist on 1,000 men coming in to lay down their arms, if the Zulus are afraid to come. He must bring the two guns and their remainder of the cattle. I will then be willing to negotiate. As he has caused me to advance by the great delay he has made, I must go now to the Oman Velossi and to enable my men to drink. I will consent, pending negotiations, to halt on the further bank of the river, and will not burn any kraals until the 3rd of July, provided no opposition is made to my advance to the position on the Ulum Velosi, by which day, the 3rd of July at noon, the conditions must be complied with. If my force is fired on, I shall consider negotiations are at an end, and to avoid any chance of this, it is best that Mandala come to my camp at daybreak or tonight, and that the Zulu should withdraw from the neighbourhood of the river to Alundi. I cannot stop the general in command of the coast army until these conditions are complied with. Of course, nothing more was seen or heard of Mandala. On the 2nd of July, an impi 20,000 strong, advanced from Alundi as if to attack. Newdigate and Wood, at a short distance from each other, immediately lagered their wagons, and these preparations seemed to check the enemy. It is possible that Quechuao had personally some idea of surrendering, as it is stated that a large herd of white cattle, the royal colour, was seen coming towards the camp from the direction of Quechuao's new stronghold at Mahazi Kanyi. A number of men came out and drove the cattle back. A sudden scare or panic had just taken place at the camp. Men of the native contingent, having become alarmed, rushed in over a portion of the 2nd of the 4th Regiment, our short-service red jacket, seeing naked black men rushing in past them, assegai in hand, imagined that the Zulus were upon them, and fled in terror within the lager. So demoralised did the men become that it required exertion of physical force on the part of their officers to induce them to return to their posts. On the 3rd of July, a large force of mounted men under Colonel Buller crossed the river at a drift commanded by a rocky hill from which the enemy were gallantly and quickly dislodged by Baker's irregular horse. Buller moved forward to Nduengo Kral, and on the way several stragglers were killed. One of them was struck by Lord William Beresford with the exclamation, First spear, by Jove! Shortly afterwards, this force was nearly trapped, by means of the decoy of a man with a number of goats, who moved forward in front. The nonchalance of this fellow was so suspicious, that the force was suddenly wheeled to the right in the direction of Elundi, and no sooner had this been done than a crowd of Zulus who had been in ambush rose out of a donga at a hundred yards' distance and poured in a heavy volley. Preparations for the battle were made during the night of the 3rd of July. War dancing took place amongst the enemy. 
while at our side the wagons were carefully formed into a lager. And at 6am on the 4th of July the British army, leaving this camp, crossed the Mvelosi River, and ascending to the high ground formed upon it in order of battle. It was here that the Zulus had defeated the Boers, and it was therefore fitting that upon the field where the white men had once met disaster, their crowning triumph should take place. A victory sufficient to repair and efface the stains of all previous calamities was absolutely required, and it was obtained in the most complete and satisfactory manner. The leaders of the Zulu army were named Tainguayo, Manyamani, Dabulamanzi, Mundula, Suryeo, Mekal Kazulu. The force under their command was numbered more than thirteen corps of regiments, was larger than that of Kambula, and comprised more than twenty thousand men. One of the prisoners, named Undunguryayanga, son of Ummangengi, declared that it was true that the king had wanted to make peace, and, previous to the battle, in an address to the army, said that as the Inkandampaniavu regiment would not let the white cattle go to the British as a peace offering, and as the white army was now at his home, they could fight. The battle was to take place on the open plain between the Ndwengo and the Ulundi Kraals. The king then personally placed the different regiments, gave final orders, and retired to a kraal at a short distance to witness the battle. The place in which the British army was drawn up had many advantages. A broad open country was around, almost free from bush. The Ndwengo Kraal, distant about 1,000 yards, offered some cover to the enemy and it would have been burned had not Colonel Buller suggested that, if this were done, the Zulus would be enabled to creep up under the cover of the smoke. Very shortly after a halt had been made, and while the solemn duty of burying one of our men killed on the previous day was taking place, it was observed that the enemy was approaching from the direction of Alundi, and from the bush on the right. Our troops were formed up in a hollow parallelogram. In the centre was the native Natal contingent with ammunition wagons. The four sides of the parallelogram were formed by eight companies of the 13th Regiment, five companies of the 80th Regiment, and 90th, 58th and 34th Regiments, together with the 17th Lancers and Mounted Irregulars. At the corners and centres, artillery was placed, Gatlings, seven-pounders and nine-pounders. At half-past eight a.m. as the enemy were advancing, Buller's mounted men were thrown out on the front left and rear. As the right was left uncovered by cavalry, Cochrane's mounted Basutus were sent out from this direction to make the enemy advance nearer. As they retired, the right face of the square commenced the action by a brisk fire. At ten minutes to nine o'clock, the attacking army was so near the British as to make the fire from the latter become general. Silently and steadily the horns of the Zulu army came on in their usual manner, without a word or a cry. The warriors of Cachawayo continued to press forward in spite of the deadly fusillade. As at Gwingalevo and Kambula, so now at Alundi. Their extraordinary bravery and contempt of death was the chief feature in the attack. During this time the British infantry were formed in four ranks, of which the front knelt while the rear rank was reversed. Inside the square every means of obtaining ammunition swiftly was provided. The continuous and tremendous fire poured upon the advancing enemy had no perceptible effect at first. On like a wave of the sea which cannot be stopped poured this human tide. But when it had advanced to a distance of mere seventy yards, 
flesh and blood could no longer stand the awful destruction which poured from the British lines. The main body hesitated and stopped. A few, more intrepid than the others, rushed on, but the wavering feeling spread throughout the Zulu host, and now was the exact moment to take advantage of it. The dogs of war were suddenly slipped. Out rushed the lancers and bore down like a hurricane upon the disheartened and discouraged multitude. Shells were breaking in all directions amongst their masses. The incessant pings of rifle bullets were doing deadly execution. And when the cavalry plunged in amongst them, the Zulu army was literally torn asunder and broken. The flower of these warriors of Zulu land made yet one more wild effort when Captain Edgar of the Lancers was shot dead and Captain Drury Lowe, Lieutenant James, and other officers had a narrow escape. Nine men were killed, and no fewer than seventy five were wounded. But all was in vain. Ketchawayo's great army was forced to turn and to fly. They had met the white man upon the open plain, and though more than 20,000 to 5,000, were totally and completely defeated. Away went the mounted men in pursuit, and before the slaughter ended fully 1,000 of the Zulu army bit the dust. The lancers with the irregular horse did very good work, as it is estimated 450 of the enemy were killed in the pursuit. The Zulus ran with surprising swiftness. The lancers drove a crowd into a donger and, working round, pursued a mass of fugitives who, being overtaken and at bay, made an unavailing stand when 150 of their number were killed. A rest was ordered after the battle, and then the mounted force rode on to Alundi, which was found wholly deserted, and was at once given to the flames. Subsequently, all the forces fell back upon the lagered camp which had been left in the morning. Alundi the great place of the great monarch of southern Africa, was wholly destroyed. The king's palace consisted merely of a thatched building of four rooms with a veranda. A Spartan absence of all furniture and of all luxuries was perceptible, but the numerous huts and kraals indicated that this place had been the headquarters of a powerful army. Lord William Beresford was the first to enter. It was a grand sight to see the flames mounting to the skies, and to know that in their smoke the prestige and influence of the greatest savage power in southern Africa had ended. Mr Archibald Forbes, the correspondent of the Daily News, although suffering from a wound, galloped to the colony with the news of this victory. He carried an important dispatch from the general, and was the first to telegraph the news to Natal and to the world. Starting early in the forenoon, immediately after the Battle of Alundi, he rode in 14 hours a distance of 110 miles to the nearest telegraph station at Landsman's Drift on the Buffalo River. Twice he lost his way in the midst of dense mist, and during the entire journey was exposed to attack by scattered parties of the enemy. It was a daring ride, which will live in the history and deserved special and generous recognition. The following is Lord Chelmsford's telegraphic dispatch, giving a description of the battle. Ketchawayo, having not complied with my demands by noon yesterday, July 3rd, and having fired heavily on the troops at the water, I returned the 114 cattle he had sent in and ordered a general reconnaissance to be made by the mounted force under Colonel Buller. This was effectually made, and caused the Zulu army to advance and to show fight. This morning, a force under my command, consisting of the 2nd Division under Major General Newdigate, numbering 1,870 Europeans, 
530 natives and eight guns, and the flying column under Brigadier General Wood, numbering 2,192 Europeans, 573 natives, four guns and two gatlings, crossed the Mvelosi River at 6.15, and marching in a hollow square with the ammunition and entrenching tool carts and bearer companies in its centre, reached an excellent position between Nguengu and Ulundi, about half-past eight a.m. This had been observed by Colonel Buller the day before. Our fortified camp on the right banks of the Umvelosi River was left with a garrison of about 900 Europeans, 250 natives and one Gatling gun under Colonel Belair's. Soon after, half-past seven, the Zulu army was seen leaving its bivouacs and advancing on every side. The engagement was shortly afterwards commenced by the mounted men. By nine o'clock the attack was fully developed. At half-past nine the enemy wavered, the 17th Lancers, followed by the remainder of the mounted men, attacked them and a general rout ensued. The prisoners state that Ketchewale was personally commanding and had made all the arrangements himself and that he witnessed the fight from Kwikizari Kral and that 12 regiments took part in it. If so, 20,000 men attacked us. It is impossible to estimate with any correctness the loss of the enemy owing to the extent of the country over which they attacked and retreated but it could not have been less, I consider, than 1,000 killed. By noon, Ilundi was in flames, and during the day all the military corrals of the Zulu army and in the valley of the Umvelosi River were destroyed. At 2pm, the return march to the camp of the column commenced. The behaviour of the troops under my command was extremely satisfactory. Their steadiness under a complete belt of fire was remarkable. The clash and enterprise of the mounted branches was all that could be wished, and the fire of the artillery was very good. A portion of the Zulu force approached our fortified camp, and at one time threatened to attack it. The native contingent, forming a part of the garrison, were sent out after the action and assisted in the pursuit. As I have fully accomplished the object for which I advanced, I consider I shall now be best carrying out Sir Garnet Wallersley's instructions by moving at once to Etonganini and thence to Quazagaza. I shall send back a portion of this force with empty wagons for supplies, which are now ready at Fort Marshall. The last paragraph of this dispatch requires comment. A great victory had been gained, and certainly should have been improved upon. It was known that Quechua was with the army, and subsequent intelligence proved that a very little effort would have resulted in his capture. The new kraal of the king was only twelve miles distant, and if a forward movement had been made to that place, an enormous advantage, which was merely a logical sequence of battle, could have been secured. Sir Garnet Wallersley's instructions about retiring to Eton Ganini are quoted, and he is apparently made responsible for a retrograde step. Thus the war was still further protracted in an unnecessary manner. As regards the Battle of Alundi itself, Lord Chelmsford did not attack, but was attacked. Both at home and in the colonies throughout the empire, there was a generous thrill of joy amongst all classes, not only for the decisive victory, but because it had been gained by a general who had been previously so unfortunate. The beginning of the end had now arrived, and evident signs were not wanting that the Zulus accepted their defeat at Alundi as a settlement of the question of supremacy. Lord Chelmsford resigned and proceeded with a large staff from Eton Ganini to Peter Maritzburg, 
On this long journey he met not the slightest attempt at interruption or any sign of hostility. No enemy lurked at the Umlatashi bush, and in every direction the Zulus could have been rebuilding their huts and cultivating their fields. The sword was turned into a plowshare, and the ruling of fate was submitted to. Still, serious doubts filled the minds of old colonists, who ranked above all their other qualities the supreme cunning and dissimulation of the Zulu race. It was felt as a calamity that no forward move had been made after Alundi, and that there was no real finality to the war until Ketchawea was either killed or captured. Lord Chelmsford arrived at the capital of Natal on the 21st of July, and was received there with an enthusiasm which completely surprised him. Powerful reactions are common in the public mind, and the general, who had yesterday been severely criticised, was today lauded to the skies. The corporation presented an address in which it was made a source of special gratification that, after the numerous unforeseen difficulties which had to be overcome, his lordship's arms had obtained a brilliant and decisive victory. At Durban, a grand public banquet was given, when Sir Garnet Wallersley, Sir Henry Bulwer, General Clifford, Sir Evelyn Wood, Colonel Buller, and all distinguished officers and citizens were present. Lord Chelmsford on this occasion said, There is a saying very frequently quoted nowadays that nothing succeeds like success. But gentlemen, if I thought that you asked me to dinner simply because I had been successful, it would be as water from the Dead Sea placed to my mouth. But from what the Mayor has said, it is clear you sympathise with me not because I succeeded, but because under circumstances of extreme difficulty I endeavoured to do my duty. There have been many painful incidents connected with the war so that it is impossible to look back upon it without mingled feelings of satisfaction and regret. On this I will not further touch. But there is one point on which I can look back with pure and unalloyed satisfaction, already alluded to by my gallant friend General Wood. I mean the loyal and efficient assistance given to me, by all ranks in the army, which is such that the satisfaction and pride that I feel will be remembered as long as I live. I could never have believed it possible for any general to receive such assistance and devotion as I have experienced from my men. I could always feel that, whether I was present or absent, they were striving to do their best to get out of difficulties, and this was not confined to one rank, but to all common, to all ranks. And I believe I may say that I had the confidence and sincere support of all ranks of the army, from the lowest to the highest. It would be invidious to particularise individuals and services. But when I look back 18 months, two names stand out in broad relief, those already alluded to. The one by the Mayor and the other by General Wood. The names of Wood and Buller. I can say that these two men have been my right and left supporters during the whole of my time in this country. They came out with me in the same steamer. In every position I've been in, they have been there at the forefront and now I feel proud to think they return with me to their native land again. The mayor asked one question, namely whether the war was over or not. I think I can best answer this by saying that these two men are going back to England, and depend upon it. If there were any great work to be done, these two men would never have left the forces. I again thank you for the manner in which you drank to this toast, and desire to include in my thanks all those who met me on Monday night. I shall carry back a grateful remembrance of this place, 
and if in the public position I shall hold it as ever possible for me to render any assistance towards the prosperity of the colony, you may depend upon it that I shall do so. In concluding this chapter, it seems right to quote fully from the London Gazette the official reasons for placing five brave men on the roll of fame for gallant deeds performed in the Zulu War. War Office, June 17th The Queen has been graciously pleased to signify her intention to confer the decoration of the Victoria Cross on the undermentioned officers and soldiers of Her Majesty's Army, whose claims have been submitted for Her Majesty's approval for their gallant conduct during the recent operations in South Africa, as recorded against their names, viz. Captain and Brevet Lieutenant Colonel Redvers, H. Buller, C.B., 60th Rifles, for his gallant conduct at the retreat of the Zulubain on the 28th of March 1879, in having assisted, while hotly pursued by Zulus, in rescuing Captain C. Diasi of the Frontier Light Horse, who was retiring on foot and carrying him on his horse until he overtook the rear guard. Also, for having, on the same date and under the same circumstances, conveyed Lieutenant C. Everett of the Frontier Light Horse, whose horse had been killed under him, to a place of safety. Later on, Colonel Buller, in the same manner, saved a trooper of the Frontier Light Horse, whose horse was completely exhausted, and who otherwise would have been killed by the Zulus, who were within eighty yards of him. Major William K. Leet, 1st Battalion, 18th Regiment, for his gallant conduct on the 28th of March, 1879, in rescuing from the Zulus, Lieutenant A. M. Smith of the Frontier Light Horse during the retreat from the Zerbane. Lieutenant Smith, while on foot, his horse having been shot, was closely pursued by the Zulus, and would have been killed had not Major Leet taken upon his horse and rode with him under the fire of the enemy to a place of safety. Surgeon Major James Henry Reynolds, Army Medical Department, for his conspicuous bravery during the attack at Rourke's Drift on the 22nd and 23rd of January 1879, which he exhibited in his constant attention to the wounded under fire, and in his voluntarily conveying ammunition from the store to the defenders of the hospital, whereby he exposed himself to a crossfire from the enemy, both in going and returning. Lieutenant Edward S. Brown, 1st Battalion, 24th Regiment, for the gallant conduct on the 29th of March 1879, when the mounted infantry were being driven in by the enemy at Zerblane, in galloping back and twice assisting on his horse under heavy fire and within a few yards of the enemy, one of the mounted men, who must otherwise have fallen into the enemy's hands. Private Wassel, 80th Regiment, for his gallant conduct in having, at the imminent risk of his own life, saved that of Private Westwood of the same regiment. On the 22nd of January 1879, when the camp at Isalawanda was taken by the enemy, Private Wassell retreated towards the Buffalo River, in which he saw a comrade struggling and apparently drowning. He rode to the bank, dismounted, leaving his horse on the Zulu side, rescued the man from the stream, and again mounted his horse, dragging Private Westwood across the river under a heavy shower of bullets. Now it's time to listen to some silence. Case 2. Ancient Sorceries There are, it would appear, certain wholly unremarkable persons, with none of the characteristics that invite adventure, 
who yet once or twice in the course of their smooth lives undergo an experience so strange that the world catches its breath and looks the other way. And it was cases of this kind, perhaps more than any other, that fell into the widespread net of John Silence, the psychic doctor, and appealing to his deep humanity, to his patience, and to his great qualities of spiritual sympathy, led often to the revelation of problems of the strangest complexity, and of the profoundest possible human interest. Matters that seemed almost too curious and fantastic for belief, he loved to trace to their hidden sources, to unravel a tangle in the very soul of things, and to release a suffering human soul in the process, was with him a veritable passion. And the knots he untied were indeed after passing strange. The world, of course, asks for some plausible basis to which it can attach credence, something it can at least pretend to explain. The adventurous type it can understand. Such people carry about with them an adequate explanation of their exciting lives, and their characters obviously drive them into circumstances which produce the adventures. It expects nothing else from them, and it is satisfied. But dull, ordinary folk have no right to out-of-the-way experiences, and the world having been led to expect otherwise is disappointed with them, not to say shocked. Its complacent judgment has been rudely disturbed. Such a thing happened to that man, it cries. A commonplace person like that? It's too absurd. There must be something wrong. Yet there could be no question that something did actually happen to little Arthur Vezin, something of the curious nature he described to Dr. Silence. Outwardly or inwardly, it happened beyond a doubt, and in spite of the jeers of his few friends who heard the tale, and observed wisely that such a thing might perhaps have come to Izard, that crack-brained Izard, or to that odd fish Minsky, but it could never have happened to a commonplace little Vazin, who was foreordained to live and die according to scale. But whatever his method of death was, Vezin certainly did not live according to scale, so far as this particular event in his otherwise uneventful life was concerned, and to hear him recount it, and to watch his pale delicate features change, and hear his voice grow softer and more hushed as he proceeded, was to know the conviction that his halting words perhaps failed sometimes to convey. He lived the thing over again each time he told it. His whole personality became muffled in the recital. It subdued him more than ever, so that the tale became a lengthy apology for an experience that he deprecated. He appeared to excuse himself and to ask your pardon for having dared to take part in so fantastic an episode. For little Vezin was a timid, gentle, sensitive soul, rarely able to assert himself, tender to man and beast, and almost constitutionally unable to say no, or to claim many things that should rightly have been his. His whole scheme of life seemed utterly remote from anything more exciting than missing a train or losing an umbrella on an omnibus. And when this curious event came upon him, he was already more years beyond forty than his friends suspected, or that he cared to admit. John Silence, who heard him speak of his experience more than once, said that he sometimes left out certain details and put in others, yet they were all obviously true. The whole scene was unforgettably cinematographed onto his mind. 
none of the details were imagined or invented, and when he told the story with all of them complete, the effect was undeniable. His appealing brown eyes would shine, and much of the charming personality usually so carefully repressed came forward and revealed itself. His modesty was always there, of course, but in the telling he forgot the present and allowed himself to appear almost vividly as he lived again in the past of his adventure. He was on his way home when it happened. Crossing northern France from some mountain trip or other where he'd buried himself solitary-wise every summer, he had nothing but an unregistered bag in the rack, and the train was jammed to suffocation, most of the passengers being unredeemed holiday English. He disliked them, not because they were his fellow countrymen, but because they were noisy and obtrusive, obliterating with their big limbs and tweed clothing all the quieter tints of the day that brought him satisfaction and enabled him to melt into insignificance and forget that he was anybody. These English clashed about him like a brass band, making him feel vaguely that he ought to be more self-assertive and obstreperous, and that he did not claim insistently enough all kinds of things that he didn't want and that were really valueless, such as corner seats, windows up or down, and so forth. So that he felt uncomfortable in the train, and wished the journey were over and he was back again living with his unmarried sister in Surbiton. And when the train stopped for ten panting minutes at the little station in northern France, and he got out to stretch his legs on the platform, and saw to his dismay a further batch of British Isles debouching from another train, it suddenly seemed impossible to him to continue the journey. Even his flabby soul revolted, and the idea of staying a night in the little town and going on the next day by a slower, emptier train flashed into his mind. The guard was already shouting en voiture, and the corridor of his compartment was already packed when the thought came to him, and for once he acted with decision and rushed to snatch his bag. Finding the corridor and steps impassable, he tapped at the window, for he had a corner seat, and begged the Frenchman who sat opposite to hand his luggage out to him, explaining in his wretched French that he intended to break his journey there and this elderly Frenchman, he declared, gave him a look half of warning, half of reproach, that to his dying day he could never forget, and handed the bag through the window of the moving train, and at the same time poured into his ears a long sentence spoken rapidly and low, of which he was able to comprehend only the last few words. Because of sleep, and because of cats... In reply to Dr. Silence, whose singular psychic acuteness at once seized upon this Frenchman as a vital point in the adventure, Vezin admitted that the man had impressed him favourably from the beginning, though without being able to explain why. They had sat facing one another during the four hours of the journey, and though no conversation had passed between them, Vezin was timid about his stuttering French. He confessed that his eyes were being continually drawn to his face, almost he felt to rudeness, and that each, by a dozen nameless little politenesses and attentions, had evinced the desire to be kind. The men liked each other and their personalities did not clash, or would not have clashed had they chanced to come to terms of acquaintance. The Frenchman, indeed, seemed to have exercised a silent protective influence over the insignificant little Englishman, and without words or gestures betrayed that he wished him well and would gladly have been of service to him. 
and this sentence that he hurled at you after the bag, asked John Silence, smiling that peculiar sympathetic smile that always melted the prejudices of his patient. Were you unable to follow it exactly? It was so quick, and low, and vermont, explained Vezin in his small voice, that I missed practically the whole of it. I only caught the last few words at the very end, because he spoke them so clearly, and his face was bent down out of the carriage window, so near to mine. A cause de sommelette cause de chats, repeated Dr. Silence, as though half speaking to himself. That's it exactly, said Vezin, which I take it means, like, because of sleep and because of cats, doesn't it? Certainly, that's how I should translate it, the doctor observed shortly, evidently not wishing to interrupt more than necessary. And the rest of the sentence, all the first part I couldn't understand, I mean, was a warning not to do something? Not to stop in the town, or at some particular place in the town, perhaps? That was the impression it made on me. Then, of course, the train rushed off, and left Vezin standing on the platform alone and rather forlorn. The little town climbed in straggling fashion up a sharp hill, rising out of the plain at the back of the station, and was crowned by the twin towers of the ruined cathedral peeping over the summit. From the station itself, it looked uninteresting and modern, but the fact was that the medieval position lay out of sight just beyond the crest, and once he reached the top and entered the old streets, he stepped clean of a modern life and into a bygone century. The noise and bustle of the crowded train seemed days away. The spirit of this silent hill town, remote from tourists and motor cars, dreaming its own quiet life under the autumn sun, rose up and cast its spell upon him. Long before he recognised this spell, he acted under it. He walked softly, almost on tiptoe, down the winding narrow streets where the gables all but met over his head, and he entered the doorway of the solitary inn with a deprecating and modest demeanour that was in itself an apology for intruding upon the place and disturbing its dream. At first, however, Vezin said, he noticed very little of all this. The attempt at analysis came much later. What struck him then was only the delightful contrast of the silence and peace after the dust and noisy rattle of the train. He felt soothed and stroked like a cat. Like a cat, you said, interrupted John Silence, quickly catching him up. Yes, at the very start I felt that. He laughed apologetically. I felt as though the warmth and the stillness and comfort made me purr. It seemed to be the general mood of the whole place, then. The inn a rambling ancient house, the atmosphere of the old coaching days still about it, apparently did not welcome him too warmly. He felt he was only tolerated, he said. But it was cheap and comfortable, and the delicious cup of afternoon tea he ordered at once made him feel really very pleased with himself for leaving the train in this bold, original way. For to him, it had seemed bold and original. He felt something of a dog, his room, too, soothed him with its dark panelling and low irregular ceiling, and the long sloping passage that led to it seemed the natural pathway to a real chamber of sleep, a little dim cubbyhole, out of the world where noise could not enter. It looked upon the courtyard at the back. It was all very charming, and made him think of himself as dressed in a very soft velvet, somehow, and the floors seemed padded, 
the walls provided with cushions. The sounds of the streets could not penetrate there. It was an atmosphere of absolute rest that surrounded him. On engaging the two-franc room, he interviewed the only person who seemed to be about that sleepy afternoon, an elderly waiter with dun-dreary whiskers and a drowsy courtesy, who had ambled lazily towards him across the stone yard. But on coming downstairs again for a little promenade in the town before dinner, he encountered his proprietess herself. She was a large woman, whose hands, feet and features seemed to swim towards him out of a sea of a person. They emerged, so to speak, but she had great dark, vivacious eyes that counteracted the bulk of her body, and betrayed the fact that in reality she was both vigorous and alert. When he first caught sight of her, she was knitting in a low chair against the sunlight of the wall, and something at once made him see her as a great tabby cat, dozing yet awake, heavily and sleepily, and yet at the same time prepared for instantaneous action. A great mouser, on the watch, occurred to him. She took him in with a single comprehensive glance that was polite without being cordial. Her neck, he noticed, was extraordinarily supple, in spite of its proportions, for it turned so easily to follow him and the head it carried bowed so very flexibly. But when she looked at me, you know, said Vezin, with that little apologetic smile in his brown eyes, and that faintly deprecating gesture of the shoulders that was characteristic of him. The odd notion came to me that really she had intended to make quite a different movement, and that with a single bound she could have leapt at me across the width of the stone yard, and pounced upon me like some huge cat upon a mouse. He laughed a little soft laugh, and Dr. Silence made a note in his book without interrupting, while Fezzin proceeded in a tone as though he feared he had already told too much, and more than we could believe. Very soft, yet very active she was, for all her size and mass, and I felt she knew what I was doing even after I'd passed, and was behind her back. She spoke to me, and her voice was smooth and running. She asked if I had luggage, and was comfortable in my room, and then added that dinner was at seven o'clock, and that they were very early people in this little country town. Clearly, she intended to convey that late hours were not encouraged. Evidently, she contrived by voice and manner to give him the impression that here he would be managed, that everything would be arranged and planned for him, and that he had nothing to do but fall into the groove and obey. No decided action or sharp personal effort would be looked for from him. It was the very reverse of the train. He walked quietly out into the street, feeling soothed and peaceful. He realised that he was in a milieu that suited him and stroked him the right way. It was so much easier to be obedient. He began to purr again and to feel that all the town purred with him. About the streets of that little town he meandered gently, falling deeper and deeper into the spirit of repose that characterised it. With no special aim, he wandered up and down and to and fro. The September sunshine fell slantingly on the roofs, down winding alleyways, fringed with tumbling gables and open casements, and he caught fairy-like glimpses of the great plain below, and of the meadows and yellow copses lying there like a dream map in the haze. The spell of the past held him very potently here, he felt. The streets were full of picturesquely garbed men and women, 
all busily enough going about their respective ways. But no one took any notice of him, or turned to stare at his obviously English appearance. He was even able to forget that with his tourist appearance he was a false note in the charming picture, and he melted more and more into the scene, feeling delightfully insignificant and unimportant and unself-conscious. It was like becoming a part of a softly coloured dream which he did not even realise to be a dream. On the eastern side the hill fell away more sharply, and the plain below ran off rather suddenly into a sea of gathering shadows, in which the little patches of woodland looked like islands and the stubble fields like deep water. Here he strolled along the old ramparts of ancient fortifications that once had been formidable, but now were only vision-like, with their charming mingling of broken grey walls and wayward vine and ivy. From the broad coping on which he sat for a moment, level with the rounded tops of clipped plain trees, he saw the esplanade far below lying in shadow. Here and there a yellow sunbeam crept in and lay upon the fallen yellow leaves, and from the height he looked down and saw that the townsfolk were walking to and fro in the cool of the evening. He could just hear the sound of their slow footfalls, and the murmur of their voices floated up to him through the gaps between the trees. The figures looked like shadows as he caught glimpses of their quiet movements far below. He sat there for some time pondering, bathed in the waves of murmurs and half-lost echoes that rose to his ears, muffled by the leaves of the plain trees. The whole town, and the little hill out of which it grew as naturally as an ancient wood, seemed to him like a being lying there half asleep on the plain, and crooning to itself as it dozed. And presently, as he sat lazily melting into the dream, a sound of horns and strings and wood instruments rode to his ears, and the town band began to play at the far end of the crowded terrace below to the accompaniment of a very soft, deep-throated drum. Vezin was very sensitive to music, knew about it intelligently, and had even ventured unknown to his friends upon the composition of quiet melodies with low-running chords which he played to himself with the soft pedal when no one was about. And this music, floating up through the trees from an invisible and doubtless very picturesque band of the townspeople, wholly charmed him. He recognised nothing that they played, and it sounded as though they were simply improvising without a conductor. No definitely marked time ran through the pieces, which ended and began oddly after the fashion of wind through an Aeolipian harp. It was part of the place and scene just as the dying sunlight and faintly breathing wind were part of the scene and hour, and the mellow notes of the old-fashioned plaintive horns, pierced here and there by the sharper strings, all half-smothered by the continuous booming of the deep drum, touched his soul with a curiously potent spell that was almost too engrossing to be quite pleasant. There was a certain queer sense of bewitchment in it. The music seemed to him oddly unartificial, it made him think of trees, swept by the wind, of night breezes swinging along wires and chimney stacks, or in the rigging of invisible ships, or... And the simile leapt up in his thoughts with a sudden sharpness of suggestion. A chorus of animals, of wild creatures, somewhere in the desolate places of the world, crying and singing as animals will to the moon. He could fancy he heard the wailing half-human cries of cats upon the tiles at night 
rising and falling with weird intervals of sound, and this music, muffled by distance and the trees, made him think of a queer company of these creatures on some roof far away in the sky, uttering their solemn music to one another and the moon in chorus. It was, he felt, at the time a singular image to occur to him, yet it expressed his sensation pictorially better than anything else. The instruments played such impossibly odd intervals, and the crescendos and diminuendos were very suggestive of Catland on the tiles at night, rising swiftly and dropping without warning to deep notes again, and all in such strange confusion of discords and accords. But at the same time, a plaintive sweetness resulted on the whole, and the discords of these half-broken instruments were so singular that they did not distress his musical soul like fiddles out of tune. And that's all for today, except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic science fiction novel called Plague Ship, Nightmare Tales by Blavatsky, and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. Please, go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Ta-da, Chuck! <laughs>